Have you ever had a moment where you've doubted? And maybe that moment actually turned into a day. And then that day turned into a week. And that week turned into a month. And then maybe a year. If that is you, you're not alone. Thomas was one of the 12 apostles, a designated leader and herald of the good news of Jesus and an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. The apostles were sent out to be leaders of the early church. They had authority over um, God's people. And many of them went so far as to actually risk their lives to refuse to recant their faith in Jesus. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is work through the passage that we're going to be in, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, and then circle back to doubt and ask, how do we cultivate faith in this age? This is what John 20 reads. Now, Thomas was one of the twelve, called the twin, and he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples, but he said to them, unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Father in heaven, we thank you for this account, the story of Thomas. We thank you for the, the picture you give us of how you respond to his doubts and that we see in one of the early leaders of the church Someone wrestling through doubts. So Thomas and a number of the earliest followers of, G of, of Jesus doubted the resurrection. Some of it seems like it even happened after the resurrection, like actually having seen, them, seen him themselves. And so I hope you'll recognize, even from the earliest moments of the birth of the church, you can, there's this doubt that was present among some of them. And the question is, why did they have this doubt? Why does Thomas have this doubt in particular? And how does God actually respond to that doubt? Why does Thomas have this doubt? Well, it's not entirely clear. We're not given a, a ton of information in the Gospel of John. But it's possible that his personality was prone to more doubts. Thomas was as loyal as the other disciples, but he was prone to fatalism. You can read about that in John 11. He wasn't always the most spiritually sensitive, and he seemed actually kind of slow to understand what Jesus was doing or teaching around him. You can read about that in John 14, where he's like, Jesus, where are you going? And I resonate with that. I often feel slow to discern what the Lord is doing around me. But either way, in this moment, in John 20, his faith in Jesus is extraordinarily weak. So why? Well, I don't think it's a, it's a stretch to say that the crucifixion of Jesus wrecked Thomas. Thomas saw Jesus die and felt hopeless. He believed that he had misplaced his faith or trust in him. His friend, his leader, had died, and he started to think he got it totally wrong. And so hearing his friends say they saw Jesus 
alive. He just couldn't do it. He didn't want to misplace his faith again. He had been hurt. He had put all of his eggs in that one basket. He had gone all in. He had taken that step of faith and actually had left everything, his old life, to follow Jesus. And on that Friday afternoon, all of that crashed and burned. It makes sense to me that Thomas would feel guarded and skeptical of the resurrection. When you feel like you've gotten it that wrong, even if some of your friends are telling you something like, look, I just can't take that step. I can't. I can't. But what's beautiful is how Jesus responds to Thomas. And so how does he respond to him? Well, first, in verse 26, he comes in peace. He physically comes before them and says, peace be with you to all in the room, including Thomas. He doesn't come confronting Thomas for his doubts. He doesn't call him names. He doesn't kick him out of the group because he has these doubts. He says, peace, shalom. This refers to this wholeness, to being restored to wholeness. Doubt has a way of making you aware that something is absent, amiss, unsettled. Jesus comes and says, peace to you. Peace be with you. The peace that Jesus refers to is his own peace. It's a promise that he had actually made to his disciples in John 14, 7, where he says, My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives to you. See, this is a peace that isn't from this world, but it is for this world, and it comes from Jesus. It's a peace that existed within God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus is appearing to his disciples and saying, Peace be with you. He's fulfilling his promise that he made to them earlier. But then in verse 27, Jesus speaks to Thomas's doubts. And he says, look, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out and touch my side. Here are the very things that Thomas had said he needed, that he would not believe unless this happened. See for yourself that I'm very much alive. Then Jesus says, don't disbelieve, but believe. In the NIV, you might have your translation saying, stop doubting and believe. The Greek literally has it as, do not become unbelieving. This word is called apistos in Greek, but believing, pistos. Jesus challenges Thomas to change. Now that he sees him, he says, I challenge you to change, to become like those who upon seeing me embrace me with faith. He sees the doubts, and he seeks to address them, but he doesn't want Thomas to just stay there. He wants Thomas to move forward. And the word that gets used here, this word pistos, is a verb. It's not the noun. It's to believe. It's not belief or faith. One commentator notes, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, John's gospel follows this verb with a proposition, which demands not that we simply believe, but that we place our faith into someone. In most instances, it is into Jesus. In other words, faith is more than just an agreement. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm with that. It's active and it's dynamic. It's not just a static or fixed thing. It's an ongoing kind of trust, and it leads you to live differently based on that trust. Faith is personal and it's transforming since it is dependent on a person who has demonstrated himself powerful and trustworthy. Sometimes we think as faith as just acceptance in a certain amount of ideas, these specific ideas. And there are ideas that we hold to within our faith. 
We do believe in historical events. However, our trust is in a person. It's relational. It's more than just the set of ideas or these values. And Jesus calls Thomas to believe in him that he really is risen. Now, how does Thomas respond to this challenge? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And when he says this, he's confessing his heartfelt belief in Jesus. This isn't just him being like shocked and surprised. My Lord, my God, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing here is actually making one of the most shocking statements that a Jew in the first century could make. He says Jesus is his God. Jews were the last people in the world who would believe that God had become human, let alone one who would die on a cross. The Greeks, the Romans, and other Eastern religions of that time could all conceive of an idea of a God-man. But Jews didn't think that way. And here Thomas is making that declaration. No statement about Jesus' nature is more startling and more accurate in the whole Gospel of John than this moment when Thomas says this. Thomas's doubts are all of our doubts. Thomas typifies so many who would come after him, prone to seeing all uh, the negative in things, being slow to understand what God is doing in our lives, cautious and doubtful, of the news that we hear others proclaim about Jesus, that it's really true because we maybe previously got it wrong or we misunderstood or whatever it might be. And this is why Thomas's confession is actually like this climax. It's the climax of all confessions before Jesus because he really recognizes who Jesus is, his true identity as God incarnate, God with skin on, standing before him. And what it actually does It it takes you all the way back to Genesis 1, the way John introduces his gospel, where he says at the very beginning of it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one, in verse 18, has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And this is how John starts his gospel, and now near the end of his gospel, Thomas is making this ultimate confession. My Lord and my God. He actually recognizes it. My Lord and my God. Lord is this word for sovereign ruler. How has Thomas made this recognition? Like he sees Jesus before him, but how is he able to recognize that this is my Lord and my God who stands before him? Well, one, the resurrection was a vindication of all of Jesus' claims and forced Thomas to make a different choice about Jesus than we would make about any other person. Jesus is not like Lazarus. Lazarus is raised to, back to life, but he dies again. Jesus does not. Thomas recognizes Jesus for who he is and for who he always has been from the outset. And this means Thomas sees Jesus for more than just a great rabbi, more than Israel's Messiah. He sees God in the flesh before him. The Spirit of God has enabled Thomas to see and to trust Jesus for who he truly is. Now listen to how Jesus responds to Thomas' confession. 
Jesus reveals this, this blessedness, this blessed vision. He says, he doesn't disparage Thomas for his demands that he had made. He doesn't say to him, oh, so now you believe because you see me? When he makes this statement, he's actually just saying, look, you saw me and you believed because that's what happened. He's describing something. He's not making a judgment on Thomas. Because he's seen Jesus, Thomas's faith has, uh, is anchored in his sight. And that's not a bad thing. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's this theme of seeing and believing. They're joined, or seeing and faith. Many people saw Jesus and marveled at what Jesus did, but marvel is not the same as belief or trust. It didn't lead to faith. There has to be a seeing that is more than your eyes can see. It's not that the physical sight was diminished. It isn't. Otherwise, why would Jesus rise and physically appear and be before his 11 disciples and many other disciples as well. It's not that it was diminishing physical sight. Jesus came to them and they saw him with their own eyes. But their physical sight, just like in Thomas, led to their spiritual eyes being open to behold Jesus. God still had to do something in them to be able to recognize Jesus. John told us Mary saw Jesus and didn't even recognize him. He didn't rec- she didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener, and it wasn't until Jesus said her name that she recognized it was Jesus. C.H. Dodd writes, Now that he, being Jesus, is no longer visible to the bodily eye, faith remains the capacity for seeing his glory. Our spiritual eyes can be opened to behold Jesus, the risen Lord, how? Jesus said when the, Holy Spirit would co- that when the Holy Spirit comes, he would come and witness to the world about Jesus. And that Jesus also would send out his disciples, his apostles, who saw him die and rise again to be his witnesses. And that the Spirit would actually use the testimony of the apostles to draw people to Jesus. And this is why John will call us to listen to his gospel account. And in so doing, discover this vision, a knowledge, and an experience rooted in the person of Jesus. It's, di- it's a different kind of scene. It's not replacing another. It's a different kind of scene. It's seen through faith that permits people to recognize Jesus, to see his glory, his sonship, and respond to his voice the way Mary does. It's a scene that enables us to recognize him in the midst of our confusion, uncertainty, and doubts. So in light of this, what I wanted to spend some time doing is just thinking about doubt. Because I think doubt, sometimes we don't have a great... uh, we just don't have a great understanding of it as Christians and maybe even as non-Christians. And I think it's important for us to uh, think about this and talk about this. So I want to highlight three things, three things about doubt in terms of how we should think about it. One is that doubt is normal. Doubting the resurrection was a normal response of people. And even now, I would say that doubt is like the air that we breathe. It's the air that we breathe in a secular society. We live in an age where all truth claims are contested. Doubt is the norm, and we have to recognize this. 
It's the flavor of our times, and it hasn't always been this case. There's this Canadian philosopher, his name's Charles Taylor. He wrote this massive book called The Secular Age. And his goal in writing it was to trace out how we went as a society from one where it was virtually impossible to believe in God to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. And James K. Smith, when he summarizes this book, he says, we live in an age where even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now, he writes. See, there's this sense that all beliefs, Christian, atheist, secular, religious, Muslim, Buddhist, New Age, all of these beliefs are contested. That is the norm. And we have to recognize that there, any truth claim will be contested. Because it, if you don't, it'll just wear on you. And it often can wear on you. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we have to learn to recognize that doubt is very normal. It's pervasive. You could say it's the new norm and to the extent that it's so pervasive. In our time, to doubt is to be wise, to be intelligent, to be cultured, to be cool. To believe is to be simple, naive, religious. That's a kind of story, that's a narrative that exists. And it's really simplistic, but it's out there. And we can feel that. And we all know people, and maybe even ourselves, who have experienced what it is like to try to follow Jesus in our city, in a city that's as firmly non-religious as you can get, really. And, you know, we'll know people who maybe take steps towards trying to follow Jesus. Maybe they come to Alpha. Maybe they join you for a few weeks uh, with uh, coming to church. But slowly they kind of drift off. Or it might just be that you've been friends for a long time. But they slowly walk away as a result of, you know, one small compromise after another. Or they have a crisis of faith or a really hurtful experience. And over time, there's a number of things that happen that leads to the passion for the things of God, for knowing Him, for walking with Him, to grow increasingly dim as the different worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the world, as Mark writes in Mark 4. And so what do we do with this? Because it's not just other people we know, it's ourselves. We feel that in different ways. One of the things that we need to consider as we live in, in a time where doubt is so pervasive is actually learning to doubt our doubts. Maybe that sounds a little bit cheesy, but think through that a little bit. Doubt your doubts. See, whenever we doubt, we suspend our belief for one thing and put it onto another thing. This can get called uh, transference when you talk about it in psychology. You're putting it off of one thing and putting it onto another thing. So we, it's important for us to recognize that our doubts, not ignore them, not suppress them, but then work through them. Just because you have doubts doesn't mean you're right about your doubts. You can doubt them. And who is to say your doubts are correct? It's worth working through them. And, and actually, that same kind of doubt you'll have, where I'm not sure if I believe this and I want to investigate... The same applies to that, doubt, that other belief, that alternative belief that you're beginning to uh, rest on. The second thing to consider about doubt is that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. They're different. 
Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is the struggle to believe. There's still a search for truth. Unbelief is the stubborn refusal to believe. It's the denial of truth. They're different. Doubt can say, I want to believe it. I don't know. Unbelief is the one who says, I don't believe because I have my alternative facts. There's just this resistance to it. It's the kid who plugs their ears because they don't want to have their parents confront them about their behavior. It's the one who doesn't want to hear about how their favorite store depends on cheap labor and environmentally harmful practices. It's the person who doesn't want to know that their favorite cell phone company is complicit in labor abuses in China because that would require them to make a different decision. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas for his doubts. There's this kind of idea that some of us have where if we really had faith in Jesus, we wouldn't have doubts or questions about it. We would just keep calm and carry on. But some of you need to know that your doubts, your questions, your critiques of your faith are not the same as losing your faith. Doubts are not the end of your faith. Thomas doubted. Peter doubted. Other disciples in the Gospels doubted. It wasn't the end of their faith. Going through a storm of doubt is not the same as a shipwreck. Your doubts may feel like a shipwreck, but they aren't. They're a storm. And all storms pass. Not all storms lead to shipwrecks. Now, progressive Christianity, it might scoff at old answers. Conservative Christianity, though, will critique new questions. And the goal for us isn't to avoid the questions or to scoff at the old answers. In fact, both of those can be like deadly sirens calling you as you experience your doubts to go this way or to go that way. And yet I think following Jesus and trusting him will mean that you'll never feel like you fit in with the left or the right. You just don't really fit in. You'll kind of feel like you've been exiled. Like you just don't fit in neatly. See, the call for you and I, as we work through our doubts, is not to move to the left or to the right, but to go deeper, deeper into Christ. The call is to learn to follow Jesus through the desert of doubt, towards God's kingdom in the here and now, to become, as A.J. Swoboda will say, a people whose love and faith remain after doubt. How? How do we do that? Well, the answer might seem unsatisfying to some of you, but it's actually through trusting in his presence. Henry Nouwen, he writes, Getting answers to my questions is not the goal of the spiritual life. Living in the presence of God is the greater call. And Nouwen is not like this guy who just like thought of that out of nowhere. Like He's drawing on the people who went before him. They often get called the ancients. You see them in the scriptures. Job is an example of this. Job is a man who loses his family, his home, who loses his health. His friends are doubting whether or not he's really even been faithful to God. They're actually just hurling like more accusations upon him. They're not helping. He starts full of questions for God, empty on trust. And over time, those things fizzle away. 
Job, though, doesn't get answers. He gets questions from God. Were you there when I made the foundation of the earth? Were you there to watch the first sunrise? There are all these different questions that Job receives. And the story of Job really is so striking because God doesn't give him answers. God gives him his presence. Job stands there in silence with no more questions. He stands there with just hope, love, and trust. And in Thomas's doubt, Jesus comes before him, is present, and invites him to touch him, to see him. There's this invitation to encounter him. I think one of the best ways to work through this sense of doubt is to go deeper into Christ, but also to seek him out. John Marcomo will say the best way to grow your faith is to see the works of Jesus and to hear the words of Jesus. How? Put yourself in places where you can encounter him, where you can encounter him. And some of these you'll actually recognize as I share them. You're like, oh, yeah, I know that. But trust that as you put yourself in these places, you can actually encounter him. Spend time reading scripture to hear from him. Some days it'll feel so dry, and other days the words will leap off the page as he speaks to you by the Spirit. Connect with him and connect with others in a DNA group, sharing your doubts with them. And those of you who listen and hear someone share your doubts, listen well. Don't feel like you need to come up to, with an answer to that person's doubts. Be a great listener before you come up with a great answer. Some of us just need to be heard and have a space to be able to articulate that. And one of the cool things is John, in his gospel, never tells us that any of the other disciples come at Thomas for his doubts. And they remain in relationship with him, even as he doubts. We need to be a people like that, where Thomases have room for that. We need to listen to stories of God at work in the lives of others, stories of generosity, Stories of forgiveness, stories of answered prayer, of love, of healing and complete transformation. History is full of the story of God at work. And sometimes people will uh, describe like a really cool moment where it's like the grace of God in their life, as you might recognize it, and they might just feel like the universe has my back. There's so many stories for which there is no good explanation other than that Jesus really is who he says he is, that Jesus really is good. One of the things that can be helpful at this time is to go over your journal in seasons where there was rich intimacy and vibrant faith and look over what it is that he has actually said to you. Remind yourself of what he said in those moments as you struggle in your doubts. One of the things you can do is actually spend time with people who have faith when you feel like you don't have very much and let someone else's faith carry you for a season. Let them be the people who drive you to church, who pray with you and for you weekly because you're in a place where you feel like you lack it. Place yourself in a place where you can see the works of Jesus and hear his words. Third thing to consider, doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is certainty. We mistake doubt as this polar opposite of faith or trust, and it's not. 
certainty is. Certainty seeking can actually become an idol. Even amongst Christians, it's having this thing and feeling like you have to be certain. But doubt can actually be an aid in our journey as we follow Jesus because it presses us and moves you into this hunt for the truth. So I would encourage you to actually define success in your life and in your faith as trust, not certainty. Philosophers point out that knowledge of truth doesn't require certainty. We know that the earth is three million miles away from the sun, yet you and I have never been there. So how can we be certain of that? We can't be 100% certain of it, but... You know, probably read in like 10th grade or whatever, a textbook written by, you know, a scientist, a mathematician, or a physicist, and they talk about this distance. We don't know that with certainty, but the odds are that we have a knowledge of reality. The whole scientific method is based on an idea that what we can see, observe, and studies that we can, are repeatable are trustworthy. We, li- we have these ideas that we live in a world governed by some form of laws that provide order to this life that we live. Yet we can never have 100% certainty in the scientific method of God's existence or his non-existence. It doesn't work like that. It just means, and it doesn't even mean we have a lack of the knowledge of truth. Life is full of things that you and I have to make 100% commitments to even though we don't have 100% certainty. We do that all the time. I can watch 15 of my friends jump off of a, you know, a bungee bridge or whatever, like a go bungee jumping. I can watch it work every single time. You could tell me that like, the guys who have done it have been trained to make sure it's done properly and that all of the cords that they use, ropes, whatever they are, are like the highest level of um, safety and all that stuff. Doesn't mean that I will be certain and I have to make a decision to commit to do that if I want to do that with my friends. Now, you guys know, if you guys have been here for a while, you guys know I'm afraid of heights, so you pretty much have to push me off. But there is this thing where we have to do this, where we don't have 100% certainty, but we still need to make a commitment. And a great example of this is marriage. In marriage, we have to do this. You don't have 100% certainty that the person that you are going to marry is going to be your perfect match that you're going to have this great life together on your wedding day. But on your wedding day, you make a commitment. And you say, I'm committing to you till death do us part. Maybe because you spent, you know, some, maybe you do some premarital, you guys do some personality stuff, maybe you, you work some, through some stuff, you know, you know what? I feel 80% certain. I feel like 80% certain this will work out really well. Right? That's great. Some of you might say, no, I was like 95. You were probably naive, you know, and you just, like, just needed to grow up. But hey, the reality is we make that commitment, right? We make that commitment on that day, even though we don't know 100%. And it doesn't mean you won't be the right match or a good match or that, you know, you're going to have this greater life ahead. It just means that you have to make that commitment. And in this sense, all of us are people who have to be people of faith. Not faith in the religious sense, but in the sense of trust. You have to have faith to live. Faith that, you know, when you drive to work, your car will work. It'll get to you to where it needs to get you. It's not going to break down. That you're not going to have a heart attack when you're driving or a seizure or something else. 
you have to continue to live, even though you don't have 100% certainty that that, will, that that won't happen. That's how life is. And so, make trusting him the measure of your success, not certainty. Trust is an orientation of your whole self in love towards someone. It's living in reliance on someone or something to chart a course of life, through life. The end goal in our discipleship isn't that you and I are going to be free from all of our doubts. But it's that we will live a life full of trust in him. He doesn't call us to be 100% certain with no doubts. He calls us to trust him. Follow me. Trust him. Not just our ideas about him, but trust him, the person. And so here we come back to Thomas and Jesus and this interaction they have. Because Jesus says to him, you've seen me and you believe. And he says this really interesting line. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What's beautiful about that is that he's actually acknowledging any other person who doesn't get to see the risen Lord with their own eyes. He's thinking of you and I. He's thinking of those around the world who would believe the t- uh, account of the apostles' testimony of having seen the resurrected Jesus. They proclaimed he is risen. They gave their lives for this. Tradition indicates that Thomas would go on as a herald of Jesus to India, to southern India, and would eventually be killed for his faith. He'd be speared to death. Here Jesus declares, Blessed are those who have not seen me with their eyes and yet still recognized me. In sync with God's kingdom are those who have not seen and yet trusted in me because they have my life in them. Flourishing are those who have not seen me with their eyes and still trusted in me, for they have become resurrection people. They have become new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. We don't get certainty but we are invited to trust in him. And our trust becomes an act of worship. When you wrestle with God and you're trying to make sense of who he is and what he's doing like Jacob, when you sit in silence before God like Job, when you're suffering and asking, where are you? I feel like you've forsaken me like Jesus does on the cross. But you're coming to him. You are worshiping because in all of these moments, they are indicative of a belief that he has not let go of you, that he is worthy of your attention, of your trust, even though it doesn't all make sense. 